Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Susan Jacoby, an independent scholar specializing in the history of reason, atheism, secularism, and religious liberty. She's the best-selling author of 12 books, including Free Thinkers, A History of American Secularism, and The Age of American Unreason, which just came out in a new updated edition titled The Age of American Unreason in a Culture of Lies. Susan Jacoby, welcome to the show. Delighted. You know, I'd like to start off not with The Age of American Unreason, but with a really important book, another really important book, that actually preceded it by 45 years. Uh, And that's Richard Hofstetter's Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, which was published back in 1963. So I was wondering, what sort of influence did Hofstadter's work have on you? Well, uh, it had a strong influence. First of all, the first edition of The Age of American Unreason, which was published in 2008, it was actually the editor who asked me to write it uh, sort of wanted me, he said, what would you like to take a crack at bringing Richard Hofstadter's book up to date? And I thought, boy, that's an interesting idea, because, of course, the one thing Richard Hofstetter doesn't write about in anti-intellectualism in American life, because he couldn't write about it then, was the, you know, the, the entire digital world we live in, which I, somebody asked me a question, in fact, at a speech at a Unitarian church the other night about, uh, about did I think Hofstetter could have predicted, you know, the current digital world and its influence on our attention span and our thinking. And of course, I said no, because none of us did. I was alive in 1963, obviously. And, uh, and, and of course, we didn't, we didn't imagine what the digital world would be like. The, the only people who even knew it was coming were people who knew a great deal more about technology and mathematics than the average well-educated person does. So you couldn't know that. So one of the things I was interested in doing in 2008 was bringing it up to date in that way. But the new edition, you know, just published in paperback this month, it's different because one of the things that I realized that I didn't understand in 2008, and again, I don't think anybody quite predicted that either, is that, is that we're in a world in which bad things have a geometric progression. Uh, Hofstadter talked a, a great deal about the cyclical nature of anti-intellectualism in American life. I don't think he would have found it all that surprising that a guy like with a personality like Trump could have been elected president. Uh, what he could not have foreseen are the ways in which the man is perfectly suited to 
the shortened attention span of the American public, uh, which has never, never quite been the case before of the man meeting the moment. So that it's not only I see Trump not only as part of the cyclical anti-intellectualism that Hofstadter described, but also as part of the cyclical anti-intellectualism, anti-reason plus X, the X being all of the influences on us that sometimes give us the attention spans of Nat. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I wanted to ask you about that first edition uh, that came out in 2008. Now, to me, when I think of 2008, I think the very end of George W. Bush's presidency. And at that point, at least, it seemed to me that we'd reached, I don't know, a high mark, a low mark, whatever you want to call it, for anti-intellectualism in the White House. And I'm, <laughs> yeah, was that, was, was writing, was coming out yuck, with the book? Yuck. <laughs> right. You're, you're now thinking that was Pericles in Athens, right? You know, and uh, George W. Bush was Demosthenes compared <laughs> to what we have now. <laughs> well, you know, you know, it had occurred to me, right? Uh, and, and I was wondering, so back in 2008, was that sort of a, a reaction or kind of a, a warning you were kind of maybe writing in reaction to what we had just witnessed for the last, you know, eight years, essentially? Oh, sure. I I did nearly all of the research for that book during the four years of George George W. Bush's second term. And one of the things, if if this book was going to be released, I had to do was, I mean, the, the question was, I had to look at all of the things that happened, not just during the 2016 campaign when Trump first took his stairway ride down in Trump Tower, but all through the Obama presidency. I mean, so the question which you, which you hear discussed in New York uh, endlessly uh, by, quote, the elite, unquote, I always put those in quotation marks uh, simply because it's a term invented by the right to describe anybody they don't agree with. Uh, but it's discussed endlessly. How did we get from Obama, one of the most thoughtful, scholarly, presidents in American history, probably, probably, certainly the best president as writer since the self-educated Abraham Lincoln. Uh, how do we get from him to Trump? What I've come to realize in the last years, that's the wrong question, is how did we get from Bush to Obama to Trump? And I think that the answer is that all of the trends that have culminated in the possibility of somebody like Trump actually getting enough votes in the right places to get an electoral college win, all of those forces were at work regardless of who was president. And we get, you know, particularly those of us in the media, we get so dazzled by the personality and the political differences. I mean, obviously, Obama was a very different person from President George W. Bush, and he had some very different policies from President George W. Bush. And so we concentrate on that almost to the exclusion of everything that's happening in the backdrop. And say, for example, my first, the first edition of that book didn't even mention Twitter. I didn't see any reason to mention Twitter. It had just been established in 2006. At the time the first edition of this book came out, uh, it had a million subscribers around the world. And now it has 317 million, actually more. 317 million was the figure two years ago. And, And that is a geometric progression. In other words, I can remember back then 
most people over 40 thought of Twitter as a medium for the very young, like for young teenagers. Because really, I mean, think about it. Who would have thought that an adult, especially an adult of a stature to run for the presidency, would want to communicate in what was then a 140-character format and is now a 280-character format? It seemed ridiculous. But something in the last 10 years happened to people's heads, regardless of who is president, that uh, a president who communicated in that way or a presidential candidate uh, seemed perfectly reasonable to a huge number of people. Yeah. You know, I, I want to ask about those terms reasonable and, and the term that you coined, uh, unreason. I was wondering, what, when you use that term, what to you does that encompass, unreason? Well, you know, it's easier to describe what reason is. Reason, reason, reason is trying to find out as many facts as you can from as many different sources and think about what is logical, not only in terms of what you already know, but in terms of your own experience. Unreason is believing things automatically because of where they appear. It appears, let's say, on a political website you agree with, without any logical thinking through of whether the evidence makes sense. Here, here, here I'll give you actually two examples of this. Uh, okay. Take Donald Trump's claim that the only reason he lost the popular vote by nearly three million votes is that millions of illegal immigrants voted. Well, if you're a person who votes, and again, I was speaking in New York uh, at a church the other night, and, well, if you're in New York, you actually wouldn't read anything to know that that was a completely unreasonable statement. Because in New York, if you don't vote by absentee ballot, and that has its own requirements, uh, if you don't vote by absentee ballot, uh, which you can't do automatically in New York. Uh, you have to have a reason for it. But in any case, how you vote in New York is how you vote in a lot of this country. Not everywhere, but in a lot of it. You go to your local polling place. There's a person sitting there uh, with, a, with a sheet, you know, a, a handwritten sheet in which the last time you voted, you signed your name. Unless you're a first-time voter, you sign your name right below the name you signed the last time. There's no possible way that, say, hundreds of illegal immigrants could walk into my polling place and, and vote for the first time. And you would know this if you vote. Now, if you don't vote and you don't have any experience as well as, as what you read in whatever you like to read, uh, then you're not going to draw the reasonable conclusion that that whatever Trump is saying is wrong. I even wonder, you know, it's interesting that someone can say something like that and get away with it. I even wonder whether whether he's ever voted in New York before, because even he would have to go to his local polling place and sign his name, DJ Trump. Uh, another good example, which again, doesn't require a lot of, what I'm, what I'm talking about is that you don't have to to know what a reasonable conclusion is, you do not have to be a Harvard PhD. Everybody is talking as though distinguishing these things is some kind of an Einsteinian feat. It's not. The remember the story about the pizza parlor, well, where Hillary Clinton was supposedly running a sex trafficking 
ring for young kids. I happen to have been to that pizza parlor because it's right near where my my brother and my nieces used to live. And I have been to pizza parlors. I can definitely say I'm a person who's been to a lot of neighborhood pizza parlors. If there were any place that would be a bad idea to be running a sex trafficking ring out of, it would be any local pizza parlor you can name. What are pizza parlors full of? They're full of families with kids. Now, if kids started disappearing from a couple of tables and not coming back, (laughs) I would notice this, actually. Most pizza parlors are actually fairly small. In other words, again, reason is thinking about what you see and putting it together and not thinking about whether Fox News or MSNBC or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, uh, you don't even have to read or look at what any of those news sources have to say to know that this has got to be nonsense. Uh, So that's what I mean by reason. Obviously, it can be applied. Reason is part of the scientific method. You, You put together evidence. You're always open to things being challenged by new evidence which is not only part of the scientific method, it's also a definition of reason. You have to be open to new information that you didn't have before because the world isn't static. Whereas the, the essence of unreason is, is wanting to go back into a fantasy of a kind of static past. Uh, I would call that the essence of unreason. And reason on one level or another always requires you to be open to new evidence. If I, if I, if I go down to the corner for pizza tonight and uh, I see children being herded into dark vans out the front of my local pizza parlor, well, maybe I'll consider the idea that there's a sex trafficking ring out of it. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. I, one thing you mentioned, you mentioned elites earlier, and it seems to me that the kind of the current, uh, disdain for elites is, is also not so much a new thing. I mean, I think about, you know, way back in the 1950s, uh, the term used to be eggheads back then, of course, and that's yeah. that's nearly 70 years ago. And so I'm wondering if you think what we're seeing today is more or less a continuation of that, or is there some sort of qualitative difference now than from back then in your in your mind? Well, that's a good thing to relate to Hofstadter. First of all, the nineteen the 1950s are just one. There was also after the First World War, and, and interestingly, it also coincided with strong anti-immigrant sentiment. And we, we basically, between 1880 and the end of the First World War, had, except for Chinese, uh, unlimited immigration. Uh, after the First World War and the Red Scare, the first Red Scare, uh, there was fear of Bolshevism, there was fear of foreigners, there was rising anti-Semitism. There was renewed opposition to evolution as embodied in the Scopes trial. So, I mean, in that way, uh, in that way, unreason and anti-intellectualism in particular has always been a part of American history. Look, uh, one of the things, it's always a contradiction. Part of the American dream has always been to have your children educated, to have them be better than yourself. But the other side of that has always been an ambivalence about how much education is too much education. In other words, immigrants came here because a lot of them because they wanted their children to do better than they did and to be better educated. 
but they didn't want them to be so well educated that they moved totally out of their parents' uh, world. And that has always been a thing. When Donald Trump went in during the presidential primaries in Nevada, he uh, he won the presidential Republican presidential primary there with fifteen seven percent of the votes of people who had a high school education or less. And he he made a speech in which he said, "I love the poorly educated." Well. The American dream has never been about loving the poorly educated. It's been about having your kids do better than you. But that ambivalent flip side, but not, but not so much better that, they, that, that you don't know them anymore, which, of course, that's an impossible dream because that's what happens when children are, are a lot better educated than their parents. So one of the things Trump had is, a, is an instinct for putting his finger on people's sore spot. And that is a sore spot with a lot of people who aren't terribly well-educated. But one of the things I, I, first of all, not only do I object to the description of the elites in a country, in a country in which so many of the, quote, elite, unquote, uh, are, are only one generation away from their parents, really, how different are the elites from the non-elites in certain respect? And I have had it up to here with people who are well-educated, who are still, you know, still relitigating the 2016 election, and and who and and writing themselves about how about how the elites don't know how to talk to working-class people, and the elites don't share the concerns of working-class people. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, my grandmother uh, had to leave school at the age of 14 in 1913 in eighth grade because she was the oldest of eight children in a German immigrant family, and her her father left the family. Her first job was picking onions in the onion fields around Chicago. It was one of the greatest regrets of her lifetime that she did not finish high school. Uh, now. This is a woman I never saw without a book in her hand. She was the best informed, and I knew her very well as an adult because she lived to be 99. Uh, she was very, she was as well educated about Bill Clinton in 1990s as she had been in the debate about the entry of the United States into the Great War in 1917. And she used to constantly say, there was no excuse for ignorance. There was a public library down the street. And I think it is absolutely insulting. It, it is patron. It is it is not only wrongheaded, but it's also patronizing unconsciously to working class people to suggest that uh, that that just because you didn't go to a good college, uh, quote unquote, that uh, that that you are in no way capable of or responsible for your lack of knowledge. But of course, one of the big things that's different today is the internet, which has one thing. One thing that didn't exist in 1920, radio was the first mass medium of communication, really. And one thing that didn't exist was the ability to instantly spread false rumors around the world, in, you know, with the click of a mouse. That didn't exist. So, the possibility of getting bad information and sticking to it because it's stuff that you already agree with it. It's much easier today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, 
that you're, you're, you're mentioning your grandmother with the, always with the book in her hand reminded me of something else you wrote in the book is saying that I never saw her alone. I never saw her alone without a book in her hand. <laughs> well, that, that's a good thing. I just a woman after my own heart. Uh, but in the book, you write that America is increasingly what you call an illiterate society. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what that means and why it matters. Well, we, we don't, <laughs> that, that's interesting. I, I started this in 2008, but there's much more emphasis on it now. I think, I, I think there are a couple of reasons for it, but the primary one is there are only 24 hours in a day. And when you talk about how people really do spend their time, and it's, it's not just, by the way, it's not just, it's not, it's not just high school educated people as opposed to college educated people or the young as opposed to the old. We are all somewhat addicted to the digital fix. You know it's true uh, because you will try. I try, for instance, uh, to limit my news watching uh, to the extent that I can if I'm not working on something that actually requires me to be searching out the latest bad news. But I try to limit it to sort of kind of late in the afternoon to early in the evening, and that's it. I don't, uh, I try to avoid it. Like, like I work in a special room for nonfiction writers at the New York Public Library, and, and I've, what I keep there is an ancient word processor that doesn't get the internet, and I carry my stuff back and forth in a flash drive. I can't tell you how much more I get done there in the course of, say, two hours in terms of writing than I do at home, where every time I go into my documents and turn on my computer to work, well, you know, I mean, who knows what's there? You know, the latest, the latest thing from the trial of, of this monster, you know, who sexually abused gymnasts over a period of 25 years, that's right there. How can I pass that up? I grew up in Lansing, Michigan, where the trial is being held. And, 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 you know, somehow if you combine the natural desire of everybody to avoid what they're supposed to be doing, like work, with all that's out there, you, you, you wind up, first of all, you go from one piece of news that leads you to a link on the other. And, you know, then maybe you wind up in the sweater department of Neiman Marcus. Uh, a lot of it is just wasting time. I can find all of this out at four or five o'clock in the afternoon without interrupting my work. But unless I take some rather stern measures, like using a 15-year-old word processor at the library, it's very hard to do. And everybody knows that. And, and this, this extends right down the scale. It is. Then there are the other things that you can do on a computer. Did you ever hear of something called the Entertainment Software Association? Mm, not, I, not familiar with them, No? No. You never heard of the Entertainment Software Association? Well, it's just a PR, it's a PR association representing manufacturers of video games. And, and, and it was, again, it's one of these things that was, it was, it was a $7, a $7 billion business in, uh, in 2008, and it's a $24 billion business now. The heaviest users of entertainment software. <laughs> I love that term. I, I, just, I, I just love it. It's sort of like it's sort of like special treatment for the evacuation of Jews to concentration camps. <laughs> entertainment. I, I know this is this is a terrible thing to say, uh, but 
But the fact is, if you spend four hours a day playing video games, let's say you're let's say you're an eighteen year old, and maybe you spend a lot of other time, you know, doing your if you're going to college or high school, doing some homework and so on. What time have you got to read? There's one thing that hasn't changed is there are only 24 hours a day. And if you're spending, I don't, I don't care what anybody says. Most of this stuff is, is appealing to people because it provides instant gratification. You know, I, I've had to learn how to play video games to do the research for this. And these pop-up rewards in the games are designed to make you know, people feel happy. There's so much you do in life that doesn't give you any instant reward at all. Not even a little cartoon character popping up and saying, yay! (laughs) That's what they're designed to do. It's one of the reasons people like them, not only because they're, not only because they're competitive, but, but, but does it, does it contribute anything to your, your, your knowledge as a citizen or as a person? No. Right. So, and, and this really isn't related to intelligence in that sense, because I mean, if we look at, you know, uh, Americans with a college degree, that number's at an all-time high, standardized tests show that, you know, there's this, been this clear, this Flynn effect, this clear increase in intelligence. So this isn't what you're talking. It's not that people are getting dumber. It's just that it's easier to be distracted is what I'm hearing you're saying. Uh, I think it amounts to the same thing. And intelligence, intelligence tests, as you know, aren't really intelligence tests, that they aren't tests, for example, of your intellectual potential. They are only tests of what you know, which, do, which doesn't, you know, and which is, why, which is why if you give an intelligence test in an underdeveloped country, let's say, to somebody who has only worked on a farm, it doesn't mean that if they didn't go to a school like you did, they wouldn't be as intelligent as you are. It means they haven't been exposed to the information you need to pass intelligence tests uh, and to do well on intelligence tests. Uh, so intelligence is, I think I'd say we're becoming, we're becoming just generally stupider in the sense of our ability to think, to take the time to think things through, to put conflicting pieces of evidence together and think about it. I would say that all of that, which is really not measured by standard intelligence tests, that all of that is something which has gone down a lot. It's not just being more distractible. It's also having a base of knowledge that is smaller than, than, it, than it was before. It, I don't see how it can help but be, and I'm not saying there is a, quote, study to prove it, uh, I mean, one of the things we know is that conventional school things, we do much worse than most, the United States does much worse than most developed countries. And that may not be, I mean, in Sweden, people are just as exposed to the digital culture as we are. But there is one thing different. In most of Europe and a lot of, and and developed Asia, there are national education standards, which if you talk to a far-right conservative, it's like the deep state or something. In other words, in other words if, if you go to school in, say, Italy, to take an example, uh, if you go to high school in Naples, you have the same science curriculum as you do if you go to high school in Milan, uh, because those standards are not set by the Naples or the Milan school boards. <laughs> they're, 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 set, they're centralized standards, as they are in most of Europe and in Japan and so on. Whereas we have, we have an education system 
in which, for example, there are swaths of the country in the South and the Midwest and rural areas of the Bible Belt and so on, where you can't mention the word evolution in class. Local school boards dominated by right-wing evangelical Christians uh, make it so. So that I, I've spoken, for example, with college teachers, people think of Oregon, for example, as a totally liberal state. But there is also a strong Bible Belt in Western Oregon. And I talked to teachers at Oregon State University, teachers of their Science 101, you know, their first science class for entering freshmen. And they have a lot of trouble because because their kids are very resistant to the word evolution because it's not even used in their high school classes because the local school boards forbid it. They don't have anything like that in Europe. They're, they're naturally going to do better on a biology test than American students are. Right. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about sort of the bipartisan or partisan nature of this. I mean, do you see this as being roughly a bipartisan thing, or do you think that we see more unreason in liberals or conservatives? Or, or do you have any thoughts on that? I. I would I would say I would say that uh, that it's a bipartisan thing only when you remove religion. Uh, in other words, I do think that uh, that far right evangelical Christians, and I stress far right, there are lots of liberal evangelical Christians too. And and by that I am not talking by using liberal and far right now about evangelicals. I'm using it to mean who believes in a literal interpretation of the Bible and who doesn't. Liberal evangelicals, like say, you know, President Jimmy Carter, who left the Southern Baptist Convention because because he isn't a right wing evangelical. Liberal evangelicals uh, believe in, in there. There are many interpretations of the Bible. You know, they don't. They, you're not required if you're a liberal evangelical to believe that you could going to walk into a lion's den and God will save you and you'll walk out. Or that, uh, or liberal evangelicals don't believe in 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 Armageddon and you know how everybody who hasn't accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is going to be uh, killed on that last day. Uh, Conservative evangelicals believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, and they want to put it into use in public policy. So I think, and it is partisan only in the sense that right-wing evangelicals have made the Republican Party their home. But I think I think it's more related to religion because no one one group in this country is more anti-intellectual than people who insist that public affairs should be determined by their interpretation of the Bible. So I think that there, there is a strong religious component to it. Not, say, not saying that liberal intellectuals can't be totally irrational, too, except that I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't admit that the word liberal ought to be used to them. For example, all of this stuff on college campuses, for instance, about, uh, about trigger warnings and the idea that college students should be protected from hearing anything that they find offensive, and that if you're that if you're, for example, uh, going to talk about some famous rape case, you've got to give the students trigger warnings because it might upset somebody to hear it. That's nonsense. But I wouldn't call that liberal nonsense. It's illiberal. Uh, although, of course, it does line up in the public prints. Uh, as as right wing versus left wing, but 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 I'm proud to call myself a liberal, and I refuse to accept 
the insistence of some people that, that there's no such thing as a liberal and that you must call yourself a progressive. Nobody's going to tell me what to say. So I think, I, think it, I think that kind of thing on college campuses is decidedly illiberal. So, so I wouldn't say it's an example of liberal anti-intellectualism, although I understand how, 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 how people could. Uh, because as far as I'm concerned, uh, uh, right-wingers are certainly no friends of free speech, especially far, you know, at, at, uh, at Jerry Falwell's Liberty University. I spoke, I spoke you know, uh, about, about an hour's drive away from there at a university in Roanoke a couple years ago. And Liberty University had a squad of people who followed. They looked for secular speakers at other colleges in the area and came there and booed you and hooted at you. Uh, does, does Jerry Falwell's university ever have a speaker like me? No. You notice one of the things that you see is the disputes over over the treatment of right-wing speakers. They're all at regular universities. It's, it's not the right-wing universities who invite left-wing speakers to speak. They don't have those disputes there, not because they're so free speech-minded. It's because they don't invite those speakers to speak there, period. But nobody ever nobody ever looks at that. Right. I I know we're running a little short on time, but I want to. I'm I'm a person of of the left as you are, and so I want to spin out sort of a hopeful scenario for you and get your thoughts on it, if that's okay. Oh, good. Uh, uh, <laughs> Please so, do. <laughs> so, okay, here we go. So there's no question in my mind, and I think to all reasonable people, that President Trump just flat out lies to a degree we've never seen in, well, certainly in a modern president, maybe in any president. So this isn't the hopeful part yet, okay? But I'm getting there. The president's used to lie for a reason. That's yeah, well, true. there you go. So, <laughs> but but Donald Trump won the Republican nomination, running in a you know a crowded and aside from him, pretty uninspiring and charisma deficient primary, and then he won the presidency, running against a, a really unusually unpopular Democratic nominee, and more people actually voted for that Democratic nominee, and so I'm wondering. You know, considering all this, as well as the fact that, you know, uh, President Obama certainly was a very different type of person in terms of reasonableness, I would say, and as well as President Trump's historically abysmal approval ratings, is it reasonable for me to say, well, you know, the Trump presidency, it's, it's sure as heck not what I want, but it's maybe more of an aberration as opposed to a sign of things to come. So tell me I'm right here, please. That would be great. Uh... I would say, I hope so. Uh, I don't think we. One of the things. One of the things that I'm very wary of making predictions is because of the intent, attention span of the public. You know, who knows? I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, just the news stories that have broken about the Russian influence on the election today. It's staggering the number of them. I worked at home today, so unfortunately, I'm too well informed about today's news. But we will see. One thing I really think, though, is, is whether your scenario is right will depend on whether Democrats and liberals and independents who are unhappy with Donald Trump, it really is it, it's, it's depending on what's happening now, not only on, on what's going to happen in the midterm elections, but are people working to elect candidates to school boards, 
and local local city councils and mayors, because one of the ways in which liberalism, liberal Democrats, were just asleep, it seems, through most of the Obama years, is while they were losing governorships and school board memberships and local offices. This is how terrible things like the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, which is not too far from where I grew up, happened. Because this state, which which always until this year, almost always voted Democratic in the presidential election, elected a whole lot of the worst kind of right-wingers to local and state offices. And that's, and that's how that happened. So one of the things that I think, uh, I don't, I, let me put it this way, I don't think your hopeful scenario is unreasonable at all. It depends on how much people are going to work as opposed to just moaning and, and flapping their gums. Uh, and I do think there, I mean, there is some evidence that, that, that you could be right, simply because the women's marches have turned, which were derided at first, have, have turned into a lot more female candidates. We saw that particularly in Virginia. And from what, I'm, from what I am reading about the number of women running for state and local office next, next time, uh, and, and they're overwhelmingly Democratic, although there's an increase in Republican women running too. Uh, but I'll bet you they're, they're not far right-wing Republicans. I'll bet you they're, 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 they're women who are not crazy about Donald Trump as the standard bearer of the Republican Party. So it's possible. I mean, it's possible. Uh, uh, one of the things I do think, though, is if he is an aberration, he's an aberration whose influence on, on, on the increase of all kinds of lying in public life and people getting used to it is something that's going to take a long time to overcome, no matter who gets elected, both in 2018 and who is his? Who runs against him in 2020? I think I think the the most pernicious thing that's come out is nobody. First of all, you you don't know what to think because they just lie and lie and lie and lie, and and we've become used to it. There's no there's no use. I don't I don't listen to, for example, what they're saying about what they plan to do about DACA and the Dreamers because he's already shown that what he says one day. You know, he gets a little shout out from Breitbart News, and the next day he changes he changes his mind. Uh, so I think that a lot of the influences of his brand of lying, which is connected with unreason, is is something that it will take a long time to overcome, whether he gets the boot out of the White House or not. Because once trust is lost, it takes a long time to regain, certainly. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I, I, th- I think of everybody, let's say, between the ages of 18 and 22 right now, who's paying some attention, but maybe not as much as, as older people pay. And this is what they've seen as an example of who the president is. Yeah, yeah. It's not exactly the greatest example in the world. That's uh, for no, sure. No, that's important. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we will close. Uh, Susan Jacoby, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. (laughs) For me too. Thanks. That's it for this Politics Guys interview. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Now, listener support is really what helps keep the show going. If you'd like to help us out, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal links. 
And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also really does help. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguides.com or our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guides are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.